Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. I am here to talk. This is just a live discussion. And I came into this planning to have no plan. And actually, I don't know if that's a good idea, but here we are. And we are having a Tattooed Buddha live discussion. So I want to, first of all, I like to start these things with a practice. And that practice is the healing breath. It's my favorite. It's one of my favorite practices, the healing breath. And it serves several purposes. And for our purposes, what the healing breath is going to do is separate us from our day-to-day life and bring us to our ability to practice. So how do we do the healing breath? You may be thinking. We take a very slow breath in, counting to five mentally. And then we hold our breath and count to five mentally. And then we take a very slow breath out and count to five. And we do that in three cycles. And that serves a few functions. One is it separates us from our day-to-day life. And two is it's really, it's hard not to be mindful of your breathing when you're spending some of the time not breathing, right? So I think it kind of brings us to a new space when we do the practice called the healing breath. And also... It's a practice I like to do when I'm stressed out. I like to just, it centers me. It brings me into the moment. Just So I'm going to do the healing breath now, and I hope you'll do it with me. And I will say what I'm doing while I'm doing it. So I'm going to breathe in. I'm going to hold my breath. And I'm going to breathe out. I'm going to breathe in. I'm going to hold my breath. And I'm going to breathe out. And I'm going to breathe in. And I'm going to hold my breath. And I'm going to breathe out. And I really love that practice. And it's not a practice that a lot of people talk about very often. So I really like it. The healing breath. Excuse me. So I'm going to read to you a verse from a text. And I'm going to read from this text, Cultivating the Empty Field, which is a text I really love. It's Cultivating the Empty Field, The Silent Illumination of Zen Master Hongji, which is a really unwieldy title, right? It's by a guy named Dan Leeton, okay? Hongji was a, uh, a Chan Buddhist teacher in the 1200s, okay? That's the main thing you need to know. Okay? And he said... 
Illumination has no emotional afflictions. With piercing, quietly profound radiance, it eliminates all disgrace. Many lifetimes of misunderstanding come only from distrust, hindrance, and screens of confusion that we create in a scenario of isolation. I'm going to read that last sentence again because I think it is very wonderful and was very meaningful in Hongji's day and it's very meaningful today. Many lifetimes of misunderstanding come only from distrust, hindrance, and screens of confusion that we create in a scenario of isolation. So I don't want to get hung up on the fact that he said many lifetimes of misunderstanding. I think we could easily get hung up on that and just be thinking about reincarnation slash rebirth. And I don't want to get caught up in that. I want to talk about how our misunderstanding comes from distrust, hindrance, and screens of confusion that we create in a scenario of isolation. So we misunderstand things. Because we are in a scenario of isolation. We think of ourselves as limited and as separate from the people around us and as alone. And we don't always realize that other people are having the same struggles we do. And that's how we create this scenario of isolation. We think we're alone in our suffering and that's not true. We are all having suffering. We're all having problems. We're all having similar problems, really. So that is the scenario of isolation that we've created. Um, the Okay, Ram Das, who is a, a Hindu spiritual teacher, not a Buddhist spiritual teacher, but he's someone I like a lot. He said, we are not alone. We are not alone, not because there are many others, but because there are none. We're not alone, not because there are many others, but because there are none. And I like that. It's saying that we're all in this together. We are all struggling. We are all, all have sickness and old age and death. We all have that. And that's a very important thing to remember. And I think we forget that when we get mad at each other. We forget that we are all suffering. We're all experiencing sickness, old age, and death. Every human being on this planet, regardless of their views, regardless of whether or not they agree with us on things, regardless of whether or not they do really awful crimes. We are all struggling with old age, sickness, and death. We're all seeing people we love get old and sick and die, and we're all ourselves getting old and getting sick and dying. We are all in this together. It's sort of like we're in a burning building and instead of trying to get out, we're fighting with each other about who's going to get out first. Life is like a burning building. And so that is what the scenario of isolation. And again, we, we make that ourselves. We make that ourselves. And we are filled with distrust we're filled with distrust because we've all been kicked in the heart sometimes. Maybe maybe we've all been kicked in the heart a bunch of times, but we've definitely all been kicked in the heart a few times. We've all been kicked in the heart and that makes our heart closed and it's hard for us to trust others. And it's hard for us to love others because we have that experience of being kicked in the heart. 
And we tend to sort of project that. We sort of project that and think, well, I was kicked in the heart by this person. Therefore, I'm going to get kicked in the heart again, right? Everyone's going to let me down. And a lot of the time that doesn't serve us. When we bring baggage from our previous experience into our present experience, that often does not serve us. That's not to say we shouldn't learn from the past because we should, but we shouldn't live in the past. We need to live in the here and now. And to do that is to not revisit bad things that were done to us in the past over and over. We don't want to live in the past and we don't want to just keep getting hurt by the same experience in the past over and over. We want to take our experience and we want to learn from it and we want to move on. That's, and I make that sound really simple and easy, but of course it's not. But that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about not getting caught up in distrust. We're talking about having an open heart. We're talking about practices that help us learn how to open our heart so that we aren't stuck behind a screen of distrust all the time. And we are confused and we often don't see the world as it really is. We see the world through a filter. I like to think of those old-timey 3D glasses when I was a kid that aren't around anymore, where it's red on one eye and blue on the other eye. And those aren't around anymore. They have, I think, better 3D glasses now. But those, when you put those on and you're not watching a movie, you just see the world and it looks kind of messed up. And I like to think that that's what our perception is like. Because into every experience, we were bringing all our neuroses and all our baggage, we're bringing that into every experience in our lives. And we're not seeing the world as it is. We're seeing it as we are or as we expect it to be. And that's what we're talking about with screens of confusion because rarely is the world what we expect it to be. Rarely is the world what we expect it to be. And if we can put down our screens of confusion and be in the present moment and just see the world as it is just for a few minutes, I think it can really transform our lives. It can really transform our lives. And now I'm going to talk about the hindrances, the screens of hindrance that we have. And I'm going to talk about that as what we call the poisons. Greed, hatred, and delusion. But I'm going to zero in on hatred because I think that is something that we all struggle with. Is hate, And hatred... Maybe hatred's not the right word, and we could call it ill will, or we could even call it anger, I think. Um, we think of hatred as something really extreme, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when we wish harm on another person, or when we delight at another person experiencing harm. And I'm especially talking about when we let the our anger get the better of us. I, I, um, when I announced this event, I asked for topics and one person, John Pendle said, you should talk about anger. Is anger ever skillful? And now 11 minutes into this talk or so, I'm going to get to answering that question because I think it is really meaningful. And I think it means a lot to a lot of people is anger ever helpful. I want to first of all say that I think our language, 
around anger is really good. Is really good. And by that I mean, we often say, I'm angry. And I think that's really reflective of what anger is like a lot of the time. I'm angry. I'm angry means that anger is taking over my being. I am not Daniel if I'm angry. I'm angry. I'm not a person if I'm angry. I'm just that feeling of anger. It is dominating my thinking. It is making me sweat. It is make, maybe making me turn red. It's making me lash out at things that aren't related to what I'm angry about, right? It's dominating our thinking. And that's we say I'm angry because anger has that tendency to just dominate our thinking and shove everything else out, right? We could instead use the language, I'm experiencing the emotion of anger. And if we've got a hand, handle on our anger, then we're not angry. It's not dominating our thinking. We're just experiencing the emotion of anger. We're just experiencing the emotion of anger. So an example of what I mean. It is spring break right now for my children. And three of the four Sharpie children were here today. Now there's only one here. I'm surprised he hasn't interrupted yet. He may or he may not. But three of the Sharpie children were home today. And if you've had small children, you know, uh, there are times that for no reason, they push back when you tell them to put on their shoes or put on a jacket or finish their dinner or whatever, whatever you're doing. There are times when kids push back for no reason. Okay. And that is, it's irritating. It's irritating. And at times when children push back, um, specifically two of the children have spring break homework that I was trying to get them to do. And they both push back. And there are times when children push back and I become angry. There are times when children push back and I become angry. And there are times when I don't become angry, but I experience the emotion of anger, okay? And when I become angry, I'm going to yell at them. And the secret truth is that yelling them at them doesn't really accomplish very much. Uh, maybe some kids respond really well to being yelled at, but the kids here do not. They push back harder. They It escalates. It escalates, and that is... Unskillful anger. It is unskillful anger if it escalates. It is unskillful anger if I yell at someone and they yell back. Or I yell at a child who's not listening and they even harder don't listen. That is, that doesn't help anybody, right? So that is a situation where becoming angry is not useful. And it, I don't always remember that, but I try to always remember that. Today, I, I, remembered that. I raised my voice a little, but I didn't yell at them because I knew yelling at them was not going to help. But I did. I experienced the emotion of anger because this, this children pushing back for no reason. For no reason. And 
I think we could have all sorts of experiences like that in our lives. Outside of children, of course, we could have difficult coworkers or of course, sometimes we get angry at our significant others. That's natural. If you're around someone all the time or you are very close to someone, you're going to get angry at them sometimes. And the question that I want to ask and I'm wondering if we can answer is, does it help? Does it help us? I know I've heard people say, I had a right. I had a. I had a right to be angry in this situation. This person was really awful to me, and I have a right to be angry. And I don't want to think in those terms because I don't think it's about having a right to be angry. Why is it about rights? It's not about having a right to be angry. It's only about is my response to this situation helping me? Is my response to this situation helping me? Because getting angry or, and I want to advocate trying to experience the emotion of anger rather than getting angry. But in both cases, I think we can really ask ourselves, is this response to the situation helpful to me? Because it is, it's a response. Getting angry or feeling the emotional response of it, feeling any emotion is a response to a situation. And it's not about I have the right to get angry because I think emotions by their nature, we always have the right to have a feeling. We always have a right to have a feeling. Every feeling, I don't think of feelings as justified or not justified. I think that's a silly way to look at emotions because it doesn't matter. I think that feelings are not right or wrong they just are. Feelings just are. And when they arise, we can try to manage them and try to kind of have a moment to pause and say, is this feeling helpful to me? Or is lashing out helpful to me is more accurate. We're talking about anger here. Is lashing out helpful to me? Or should I hold back? And Rarely does it lashing out in anger help anyone. It almost always ruins whatever situation you're in. It almost always escalates and makes things worse and makes you less happy. I don't want to make a huge blanket statement and say anger has never helped anyone. That's It would be unfair to say that, but I do want to say that it very rarely helps anyone. It almost always hurts. It almost always hurts. I think that maybe when we think we're really 100% right in a situation, then maybe lashing out feels gives us a feeling of pleasure at the time. And I think that's a thing that happens, but that kind of pleasure is fleeting. And ultimately, it may give us this sense of pleasure, but that doesn't mean it's helping the situation. It doesn't mean it's helping anyone. So I think we need to be very careful. And I think 
that's why in Buddhism, anger is listed as one of the three poisons because it can really ruin things for you. It can really ruin things for you. You can lash out for one second in anger and it can ruin things for a long time. It can ruin a friendship. It can ruin a conversation. It can ruin a relationship. Anger can do all those things. And that's why it's listed as a poison. It's not listed as a poison because it's always bad. It's listed as a poison because when it is bad, it really, really is bad. It really hurts a lot. I see a comment. John Pendle says, I think the only time anger's been helpful to me is during those times when life gets tough and it can provide the drive to keep going. Fuck this. I'm not just going to give up. I think of... uh, What I think of when I read that comment is sort of... Sort of... um, I've seen people say, like, prove... Prove that people that didn't believe in you wrong... Right? Don't beat yourself up over how many people don't believe in you. Prove them wrong. Do a really good job. And that, I mean, we could call that anger, right? We could call that anger. If a lot of people don't believe in me and I'm mad at them for not believing in me and I go out and achieve, well, that's motivation from anger. That's motivation from anger. But, and I think that's why we need to be really careful when we say, if we try to say that anger is always bad or anger is always unhelpful. Well, there are situations like that. The fact is that any emotion can inspire us. Any emotion can inspire us. So so when people say it's always bad, I don't think so. But I think letting it overwhelm you so that you don't see the world clearly, that is what we need to be careful of. We don't want to let negative and anger is a negative emotion. Let's not, let's not, uh, say it's not negative. It is a negative emotion that can be used for good sometimes, but I think we don't want to let negative or positive emotions overwhelm us because when they overwhelm us, we don't see the world clearly. And we really need to see the world clearly to make the best decisions. We need to see the world clearly to make the best decisions. And that's the message I really want to get across is that extremes of all kinds hinder our ability to see the world clearly. You see what I did there? I didn't say they prevent us from seeing the world clearly. And I didn't say they make it impossible to see the world clearly. But I am saying they hinder our ability to see the world clearly. And we need to have that in mind. It's the same, I think, I think if you drink three beers in a row, it hinders your ability to see the world clearly. It doesn't completely destroy your ability to see the world clearly, but it hinders it. And probably a lot of things we put into our body, right? If I drink a bunch of coffee in a row, it also hinders my ability to see the world clearly. So I think we need to think about that so that we know, so that we can reflect and say, am I seeing the world clearly? 
am I seeing the world clearly? And there's another comment, and Daniel Symes, my childhood friend, says, anger distorts our perceptions. We see things more black and white, etc. Anger distorts our perceptions. We see things more black and white, etc. So, right, if we're angry at someone, then we can sometimes think, they're, why are they so awful? Why are they a bad person, right? We will label them black in terms of black and white. And I think that happens to us a lot. And I'm thinking of, geez, politics make me uncomfortable these days. There's a lot of things making a lot of people angry, and those people are seeing the world in black and white. And if they're not seeing the world in black and white, they're slowly headed in that direction because their anger is getting fed if they're paying attention to the news. Their anger is getting fed. And it's distorting their perceptions because it gets in the way of seeing things clearly. And Daniel Symes also says, I've noticed that it reduces the amount of empathy we have for others. That is true as well. Once we're having the experience of anger, we are not seeing the other person's side in the conversation. We are completely shut down from doing that. And no matter how reasonable they are and no matter what they do, it's we're not going to have empathy for them unless we do something to mitigate our anger. Once it carries us away, there's no way we're going to have empathy for them. And that can even happen in the... I was going to say the worst thing that can happen, but I don't want to attach better or worse. But it can also happen that we stop having empathy for bystanders who aren't involved either. We are just thinking about our anger. We're just thinking about this awful thing that's happening that's making us really mad. And we're not thinking about anyone else's needs or desires or well-being. We're just thinking about our anger and that's it. And that is very dangerous. And people get hurt and people get killed because people are carried away by their anger. So I think I will not say it's not okay to be angry, but I will say that I think we need to have a lot of care a lot of self-care around anger because if we start if we start to tell ourselves that it's okay to be angry we could run into trouble we could run into trouble and again it's not about good or bad we have the experience of anger because we're experiencing anger but we have the power to learn how to have a space in between what's called stimulus and response. Stimulus and response. The stimulus is somebody doing something that upsets us a lot. And the response is how we handle that. How we handle that. If somebody says or does something that makes us angry, we can have that space where we think, am I going to escalate if I do something? Should I do nothing? Is doing nothing worse than doing something? We can have that space and think about that and try to be clear-headed. Although it's hard, we can try to be clear-headed. It's also suggested that anger is addictive. 
that it's chemically addictive in our brains. And that is kind of a scary thing to think about, right? It's addictive because when we're angry, we really think we're right. And we love to think we're right. That gives us very feelings that kind of bring, I don't want to say happiness, but a sort of pleasure into our mind. We think I'm right because I'm angry. I must be right. That's kind of what we convince ourselves sometimes because I'm angry. I must be right. Being right feels really good. Therefore it's addictive. And that is really dangerous. That is really dangerous. I think the more we give in to anger, the more we are likely to give in to anger in the future. There are these pathways in our brain and we strengthen these pathways when we indulge them. So the more we give in to anger, the more likely we are to give in to anger. And the more we create space and try to strengthen our ability to see the world clearly, and the more we engage being in the present moment, the more likely we are to do those things too. That is how the brain works. We want to strengthen those pathways that are helpful to us. And we want to not strengthen the ones that get in our way. And anger gets in our way. Not always, but often. Thank you for listening and have a good day.